This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, as well as WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk in the evenings. It is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. Matt Patrick here uh, in the 4 o'clock hour locally here in the Twin Cities. Patrick Cooligan from The Reformer joining us. Patrick, how are you today? How are things? How is how is your life going? <laughs> it's actually going pretty well. Uh Oh, not a lot to to talk about uh, between yesterday and today. I'm looking forward to. I'm going to be heading out of town for some holiday cheer over the weekend. So oh, I'm already okay. kind of in vacation brain. Well, where which which way are you headed? Oh, I'll just be up the North Shore. Uh, that's usually where I like to spend a few days uh, during the Christmas season. But I think it's been a few years since I've been able to get up there. I have a Christmas miracle, and I'm not sharing the details. But- I'm not sure the details on where I found this guy, but I found someone to put. Remember how I had the the, the complaint about the fact that putting trying to find someone to put Christmas lights on a big tree was, you know, I think the cheapest I could find was a $500 jobber. That was, you know, kind of one of those things where it was like, okay, yeah, this is this is going to be this is going to be a little pricey. Um, the uh, <laughs> the I found a guy who is going to be, who has done it. We, we went out there today. I, he was my pal. He was my buddy. He was my buddy, old buddy, old buddy, old pal, my friend. And we got them up today at a fairly reasonable price, which I'm, I'm very happy about. I can't tell you that is, yeah, I've, I, I, it, I'm, I'm feeling good. Cause remember, I, okay. So I talked about, last Friday about the fact that this is the year after I got hit into a car accident. And last Christmas was dark, man. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, really a dark. So this year I I can't tell you how happy I am and just I'm bright and bushy tailed and, you know, feeling happy and, 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 and joyful. And so the fact that I have now a huge Christmas tree with lights on it in my front yard is, uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about things. I hope you are too. I hope whatever you've been doing is have been going well for you. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Um I have made a decision. I have made a call. I have made a a a a, a, a necessary a necessary thing. I have decided to finally stop kind of posting on Twitter. Uh, and no, stop it, Elon. Stop you, you stop trying to make X happen. Don't make X happen. You're not, that's no, 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 that's not how this works. Um, 
it, it's it's not me, it's you, Twitter. So I want to take you back in time. I remember when I first signed on to Twitter, and for the most part, it was relatively pleasant. It was your pretty standard uh, social media page. It was really in late 2015, I remember it dis- distinctly changing. And the the way how it, how it basically went from something that was somewhat enjoyable to you know to to basically um you know to something that was it was it was unique it was cuz i'd never seen it like that before it was clear now looking back on it that the the Russians and the troll farms were basically doing everything in their power. They had figured out a weakness within the system. They could take it over and basically drive a narrative, which they did successfully. Because I remember back in 2016 sitting in people saying, Democrats, Democrats saying, there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I'm like, what? And what they what they learned is I think they were on the front cusp of oh these people are addicted to this stuff they're addicted to the social media they basically are looking at it twenty hours a day and so if we basically start brainwashing them through social media we can basically convince them to do anything we want and they did they convinced a lot of people to to not vote and they convinced a lot of people that Hillary Clinton somehow was worse than Donald Trump and there you go. And it became a cesspool, and it was bad. And I mean, we we'd established it, and I stayed on. I mean, I I mean, at that point, it wasn't. There was still some level of control there. You didn't see the obscene amounts of racism and bigotry that you saw in other places, uh, in other you know, in kind of these in like Reddit and stuff like that, and some of these other places. I mean, what was, what's the what's the one social media page? Is it Discord for video game guys? Yeah, that's Discord. Yeah, I, I was hearing the stories from female gamers on that. It was phew, sounded horrible, but there still seemed to be some level of control outside of they allowed Trump to basically have free reign out there because you know, it, it brought in the viewers. I remember when they kicked Trump off. At, at, at you know at, you know around January six and they kicked him off uh, off Twitter and they realized that they had been the enabler of a lot of evil things that have happened and for about you know two years there it was a nice little reminder of what Twitter was back pre twenty fifteen it was you know relatively you know decent you know uh, you know discussions again you know the the timeline my DMs were not. You know, you know, not brimming with horrific nature of ugliness. And I didn't feel icky. <laughs> you didn't feel icky after spending 15 minutes on Twitter. Uh, you know, all that immediately changed when Elon Musk took over. I don't know if he took it over. I, well, my initial thought, my primary guess is when Elon took it over, it was because basically he was a small, tiny, tiny little man that didn't like anyone you know, basically criticizing him. But at the backside of it, when you looked at the people that were helping to finance the purchase of Twitter and encouraging him to buy Twitter, there was this extremist far-right pro-fascism element that was there that was that kind of kept you know gnawing at the back of my brain. But you know, as I said to myself, it doesn't seem like these people have the best intentions in heart. That this is 
this could actually be another attempt to basically subvert the public and convince people that indeed, indeed, the um, that uh, you know Trump was somehow not as as evil and bad as he was, which by the way is one hundred percent clear what some of the element of this is. But, you know, I, I, I started chalking it up as more and more as a bit of, of both, but it was the stretch here that we have had. And now, now let me, let me once again, give you an idea here of how much worse Twitter has been than everywhere else. I am currently, and by the way, follow me everywhere on Facebook. It's Matt McNeil show, progressive citizen X. Uh, you can find me on blue sky and Matt McNeil show. You can find me on Mastodon and Mastodon Party over at uh, Matt McNeil Show. You can also find me on threads at Matt McNeil Show, Matt McNeil One there. And um, I'm on Instagram, but I don't go there that much. But th I'm all there, but I'm also as well on Twitter. When I factor in the total of six social media pages, because Instagram is there, but threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Facebook, Twitter, and, and Insta. And I'm like I said, I want to be careful. I'm not posting that much on Instagram. It's it's kind of hard to do that with a radio show. That being said, the when I, I looked at the amount of people I had blocked, I had blocked a total of a 487 accounts on social media since Thanksgiving. Just thanks since Thanksgiving. Just since Thanksgiving. Of that 460 out of 487 were on Twitter. 460 out of 487 were on Twitter. Now, if you take away the current Facebook scam where you'll get a message saying, hey, we've deemed that we're shutting your account down in one month, but don't contact Facebook. Contact us at Facebook 2 Electric Boogaloo. You know, it, <laughs> that one, that's, you know, at RussianHackFarm.com. That's our, you don't go to Instagram. Come to us. We take care of you. You know, that's, yeah, If you, I gotten rid of all those. If you remove those, the total amount of blocked people is 460 out of 462, almost all Twitter. It's a stunning level of, of bigotry and racism. Uh, I compare it to being in a hotel at, for a convention for business. At the same time, the same hotel is hosting a convention for the KKK and Nazis. And so no matter where you go, you're kind of interacting, you're seeing Nazis and the KKK and racist and bigots and stupidity everywhere you go. And there is no real downtime. You're just dredge your entire existence anytime you're in that hotel. That's what it feels like. That's Twitter. The, I think the reason why most of us were hesitant to bail on Twitter that have been bailing on Twitter is because of followers. I have 4,000. I had 4,000. I dropped quite a bit because I think people after this latest stunt this last weekend with Alex Jones, I, I think a lot of people left. But I was up to 4,000. And, you know, it takes you a long time to cultivate a, a following like that. So it's it's not easy to walk away from that. You know, he endorsed an anti-Semitic post. And that's when I realized, okay, yeah, this is, this is not going to get better. This is when I realized this was like looking at a loved one who is a serious drug addiction and you keep hoping it's going, they're going to pull out and they're going to get better and they're going to get clean. But then you come to the realization is no, this person, there's not much that's going to save this. That's kind of when, 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 when Elon did that and he endorsed the anti-Semitic comment and then doubled down on it, 
that's when I realized, yeah, this is not, this is, this is going bad. I made the point at that moment. I said that when I got to a thousand followers combined on Blue Sky Mastodon and Threads, which are my three lowest kind of, I've got like 8,500 on Facebook. Yeah, I don't get it. But still, 8,500 or so on Facebook. Uh, if I got to 1,000 on the other three, I said, good enough, I'll, I'll cancel it. But then came that bizarro interview he did with, I think it was CNBC, Elon Musk did with CNBC, where he starts yelling at and swearing at the head of Disney, Iger. And if you watch that, that dude's not mentally well. That, that Elon, there is something seriously wrong here. And I don't know if this is just his ego is being crushed because, you know, he's one of these guys that he buys an idea and it becomes a hit. He then convinces himself that the idea never existed before he showed up. And to have that kind of come crashing down on him, and where where he basically is is can't get away from the fact that he has been the failure, particularly with Twitter, that forty four billion, if it's worth four billion, his his own internal estimates say four billion. My guess is that thing is worth at most a billion and a half, maybe two billion. He has been a disaster at managing it, and it's showing. I think he's cracking. But it was some things that he did this last weekend. That finally had me saying enough. I'll come back, talk about that. It's the Matt McNeil Show. I got a strong shiver rolling up. It is the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. So on the tail end of this bizarro interview that he does with CNBC. He then basically decides he's going to bring back um, Alex Jones. Uh, now, I can't, I can't, first of all, I can't say the words on this radio station I want to say about Alex Jones. Here is a man that after young children were slaughtered in an elementary school, called it a false flag operation and basically encouraged uh, his followers to harass and torment the families of young victims and has, to my knowledge, shown absolutely zero remorse for his actions. As a matter of fact, it seems like his big thing right now is trying to prevent from ever having to pay these families for his horrific treatment of them. This is not a person who should be allowed to speak at your local sewage treatment plant when no one else is around, let alone given a platform like Twitter or any social media page to be be able to monetize his delusional rantings. And by the way, if you saw his interview with Tucker Carlson, I mean, the guy is, is he seems nuts. But here comes Elon to bring him back and give him a platform again. And then came this bizarro, you know, this alpha bro self-gratification event. Woo! Let's get in a circle. Um, Elon hosted this on Twitter 
with just some of the worst human beings. This is, and if you're wondering what this was, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. This is the this is the event where he went to the bathroom live during the event. Forgot to turn off his mic and went to the bathroom. <laughs> Alpha bro, dude, bro, dude. It's it is it, it's it's so hilarious to see this insecure you know, pathetic man version of the Legion of Doom. It's, it really is pretty pathetic. And I mean, it, it's clear with those two movements, with, with this, this alpha bro meeting live thing that he did and Alex Jones, it's clear now to me that they're back at their old tricks they did in 2015. In 2015, when they're when they're basically saying we can, I think, convince people to to vote against their best wishes. The whole thing right now, and I talked about this yesterday with decency, where we actually have a president who's saying, I'm going to bring fascism to America. And he's already brainwashed the Republicans into when you bring that up and said, oh my God, you're going to vote for this guy? He's talking about bringing fascism. Well, they say, well, well, Joe Biden wants to give every bit of dollars to, to immigrants. So <laughs> apples, oranges, they've already brainwashed Republican voters into overlooking the true threat that Donald Trump plays to this country. Tanks in the street, people being arrested, concentration camps. These are not made up things. This, these are things his own camp has talked about. And I got another doozy for you coming up after the bottom of the hour break, which just I have zero doubt was coordinated through the Trump campaign. That's just my personal belief. I'll get to that here in a little bit. They're trying to make fascism seem palatable, seem like it's some sort of of acceptable difference in political belief. You know, hey, the Democrats wanted to spend more money on schools. We wanted to arrest people we didn't like and and, and ex- deport them to countries they're not even from. You see, apples, oranges. And that's what they're trying to do. And I've said this for a long time here. Chicago, welcome aboard. Your two choices, even if you do not like Joe Biden, Joe Biden is an Arby's beef and cheddar sandwich. It might not be your first choice, but technically it's still food. It might not be the meal most people want. Hey, I'm okay with an occasional beef and cheddar. But that being said, that's at least food. Trump is an actual crap sandwich. Feces in bread. That's what he is. And they've got to convince you that you don't want to eat the actual food that you want to actually have the actual crap sandwich. And so they have to basically convince you to vote against your best interests. And this now, this whole thing with Elon Musk, it seems like the whole point is to basically get back to a revisit of 2015 where you basically are using social media to convince a large swath of people that enough is enough. And that is it for me. I, I'm not going to be part of this crud again. And part of the problem is, and for everyone out there, it's like, well, it's fun that you're doing. If you have your thing up on Twitter, if you are there, and once again, Elon, stop trying to make X happen. X ain't going to happen. It's Twitter. (laughs) You drive people to that site then no matter what, you are somewhat culpable 
for what they're trying to do. And this is, I mean, it's the basic reason why all these advertisers have posted out there. I was actually reading an interesting article that said that the vast majority of major corporations don't even post on Twitter anymore. That, you know, it's been months since they've made a post. So their traffic has dripped down dramatically. I unfortunately do have some people where that's the only social media and I work with them. I, I interview them. I help promote them. So I'm not going to kill it completely. But if you look at my social media pages today, I'm pretty much done posting the show and all this stuff on Twitter. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to drive people to Twitter. If you want to get all the stuff that I usually post, which is the show, the, the show itself, the show recap, the all the news stories that I reference, that they're all going to be there. You can find them on the Facebook page. You can find them on the Blue Sky page. You can find them on the Threads page. You can find them on the Mastodon page. Bon appetit. Bonjour. Enjoy. That's why I'm putting them there. I want you, like I said, I, I talk about an issue. I'll post about the issue. I want you to know about it. But enough is kind of enough here. And my reluctance to basically walk away from the 4,000 followers I have on Twitter, which is is nice. It's not the biggest account by any means. I'm not exactly Tay-Tay. <laughs> Although, I, considering how much the right's turning on Tay-Tay, I wonder how much longer she's going to be on that site. Um, but I think she'll be fine. Whatever site she goes to, which becomes her primary, I think she'll be fine. The reality is, is if, if I'm there, I'm encouraging people to go there. And I do not want to be seen as part of the problem. I'm very, anytime, I don't know about you guys, but I, anytime nowadays I see someone who comes out and it's like, I'm so disappointed in Joe Biden, I might not even vote this election. I'm immediately blocking you because I'm going to presume that you are just a troll from Russia or Albania. And that's just that or just a plant for the Republicans, because the reality is, is there isn't a choice this year. If you think that Donald Trump, Johnny fascism, Mr. I want to be a dictator, that you think that that is somehow a viable option, you are an insane fool, an insane fool. 952-946-6205, Take a break, come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show on a Tuesday. Broadcasting this evening on WCPT 20 Chicago's Progressive Talk. And this afternoon on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, it is the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. So the, one of the things that I, you know, I, I mentioned is Trump as a dictator. I don't know if you've heard... Um, he, you know, his talk and his team's talk and, and these things. But Sean Hannity, he had a, a sit-down interview with Sean Hannity, and Hannity himself was like, okay, it's time for you. He gave them the softball of all softballs to try to get him to walk back his talk about being a dictator. And it didn't exactly work. I'm going to be a dictator for one day. <laughs> one day I'm going to be a dictator, and I'm going to do the border wall, and I'm going to drill, 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 and dictator. And even Hannity was trying to like, well, sir, that's not a dictator. That's just, you know, that's, you can pass, you know, presidential things. 
you know, she and he, nope, dictator. One day, dictator. Colbert last night, uh, he returned from his his appendix, his burst appendix, and he basically he made the point and said, "Yeah, that's how it works. I'll be a dictator for one day, and I sure will release power right after that." So um, you have to be careful here, and and Trump today is now because because a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans, I and mean, far right Republicans are like, okay, no. We're not going to go along with this dictator talk. So now all of a sudden Donald Trump's like, I was joking. You know me, Johnny Comedy. Ha ha ha. <coughs> funny, funny guy. Now watch me smash a watermelon with a hammer. <laughs> yeah, that's just, that's, that's your guy. Republicans, that's your guy, man. So yeah, he's lying. It just it just yeah he's he's lying he's he's not telling the truth he's uh, he's lying. So I am I I got to tell you there's a story that came on out and it, this is horrible what I'm about to read to you is horrible. But I think there's method to the madness here I, I'll get to that here in a second. Last year Donald Trump dined with two anti semites. Kanye West and Nick Fuentes at his Mar-a-Lago resort and residence drawing massive outrage while revealing to many Americans for the first time who Fuentes is a white supremacist, Christian nationalist, anti-LGBTQ authoritarian extremist who supports Trump's America first doctrine. He is truly kind of a horrible guy in his live stream show on Sunday titled the great replacement is about white genocide. Fuentes called for the death penalty for non-Christians, according to Right Wing Watch, there's video. Anti-Semitic white nationalist Christian fascist Nick Fuentes says when his America First movement takes power, all non-Christians will be executed. There has been, they've located the full video. They've published the longer version of Fuentes' remarks. There is an occult element in the high levels of society and specifically among the Jews. You know, whatever I see, that stuff, that just makes me want to proclaim louder and more firmly and more rigidly that there is nothing other than Jesus Christ. No pagan stuff, no false gods, no deities, no demons. It is Jesus Christ. We need to state saying his name, Fuentes said. I got news for you. Just As a Christian, <laughs> Jesus ain't on your side there, Fuentes. I'm just going to say, yeah, you're, 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 no, he's not on your side. It's the name Jesus, talk about it, say it, pray to him, talk about the sacrifice on the cross. That's the answer because so many of the people that are perpetrating the lies and the destruction of the country, they are evildoers. They are people that worship false gods. They are people that practice magic or rituals or whatever. And the more than anything, those people need to be, when we take power, they need to be given the death penalty straight up. And I'm far more concerned about that than I am about even non-white people or mass migration. Which, by the way, yeah, you know, there's this is not a dog whistle. This is a bullhorn. Okay, let's just be honest about it. Racist, 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 racist. And you know, you know, you know. Let's start. Let's start. You know, cleansing the or very Spanish Inquisition. Let's start cleansing the earth or Salem witch trials. You know, by anyone who we deem not to be the right kind of religion. These people that are consuming with demons and engaging in this sort of witchcraft and stuff, and these people are suppressing the name of Christ and suppressing Christianity, they must be absolutely annihilated when we take power. I'm not calling for political violence, but that cannot have any quarter in our uh, our society. 
well, you're calling for the execution of everyone who's not a Christian. So, I, you know, theological violence is what you're calling for. While the start of the segment was about the occult, Fuentes quickly turned his remarks to promoting an oppressive authoritarian version of what he calls Christianity. We need to put up. Uh, we need to put up. We need to put up our crucifix in every home, in every home, in every school, in every government office, and signal Christ's reign over our country. Fuentes declared once again, um, "Founding fathers, even with all their faults, uh, this is what, not what they wanted." Not that God needs it, but it must be outwardly expressed to the interior that this is God's country. This is Jesus's country. This is not the domain of atheists or devil worshipers or uh, perfidious Jews. This is Christ's country, he said, aiding that your agnostic cannot be part of the first America first movement. No, you must be a Christian. You must be submit to Christianity is the word. Now, I want to remind everyone a fact. This guy dined with Trump. At Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And it's not like this was a secret. This is kind of who this guy has been. It's now the far right. Trump's dinner date is now calling for the extermination of all people who are not Christian. The Southern Poverty Law Center has designated Fuentes a white nationalist extremist who advocates pulling the Republican Party further in the extreme far right end of the political spectrum. And they don't have much further to go. Let's just be honest. An outspoken admirer of fascists such as Mussolini. Fuentes emerged as an influential figure in the national stage during the now infamous Stop the Steal movement, which relied on misinformation to falsely claim that Trump had won the 2020 election and sought to overturn the results of it. In October, after Fuentes had reportedly visited a top Texas GOP donor for several hours, creating a massive firestorm, the Texas Tribune reported Fuentes 25 often praises Hitler, questions whether the Holocaust happened. By the way, this guy is 25. This guy's going to be around for a long time. So, and... Yeah, and the longer that the Republican Party, and sure, you get a Republican say, what do you think about this? They're going, oh, I'm against it. All right, well, have you condemned Trump for basically having this guy for dinner? Well, I'm not responsible for a social calendar. You know, that's what they're going to say. He is uh, praised uh, Hitler. He is he questions whether the Holocaust happened. By the way, spoiler alert, it did. It was horrible. I was stationed there. I've actually been to some of the concentration camps. It's It's truly horrible. If you've not gone to the World War II Museum, they have now an entire section on the liberation of the concentration camps, and it is some of the hardest video you will ever see in your entire life. It is hard to watch, but it's real. And that's, by the way, that's down in New Orleans. If you've not been down there, it's actually quite good. Um. He, he basically has compared 6 million people killed by the Nazis to cookies being baked. He wants the U.S. government under authoritarian Catholic Taliban rule and has been vocal about his disdain for women, Muslims, the LGBTQ plus community, and others. The Intercepts uh, prep thacker responded to the video of Fuentes' remarks, declaring it an unambiguous call for religious genocide, namely against Jewish people, by the dinner guest of the Republican frontrunner for the president of the United States. Will there be a congressional hearings, breathless wall-to-wall coverage on every news outlet? Of course not. Of course not. They're, they're out there. How dare you point out the fact that he had dinner with Trump? 
Writer and activist Elon Narani responded by blasting the House Republican Conference Chair, Elise Stefanik, who says she wants you to vote for the presidential candidate who sat down with Fuentes for dinner. U.S. Representative Mark Polk and Democrat from Wisconsin, this scumbag is who Trump invited to play to, to his place at Mar-a-Lago for dinner. Trump is not fit to be president. No, he's not. And, f- f- you know, I want to make sure you understand how much we have slipped into the realm of insanity. 20 years ago, that would have been the end of his campaign. It would have been. 20 years ago, it would have been the end of his campaign. Today, it, you know, you, you, once again, it's it's sure he, da- he, he dined with a guy who wanted to murder everyone who wasn't a Christian in this country, but the, the Democrats want to give out health care, so <laughs> we're divided. Come on, man. Come on. I mean, you, we all need to start pointing out these, these moderate Republicans who keep trying to justify their, their loyalty to Trump by basically implying that when you hear someone from the right scream, we're going to murder everyone who's not a Christian, they'll point out, it's like, well, you want a fair tax rate for the middle and lower class. So <laughs> who's the loon ball? You know, that's, yeah, that's kind of their whole argument. Free college. Okay. See, they, they, they'll create any kind of justification they can make. Attorney and adjutant professor of philosophy teaching ethics, Richard Kalish warned, this is a clear word-for-word echo of Nazi Germany. It is. And once again, I've said this. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans currently, especially around Trump, who are cosplaying Nazis. And the one thing about cosplaying someone is occasionally you take the costume off, you know? And I don't see those costumes coming off that much. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I've got a theory. Because once again, we can establish one thing. There is a relationship between Nick Fuentes and Donald Trump. That is, that's, that's not me. Once again, as Republicans will say, look at Matt, you're being divisive. You're being, you're extreme on both sides. No, no, no. That's a fact. Donald Trump invited Nick Fuentes to Mar-a-Lago to dine with him and Kanye West. Trump is trying to unbury himself from this whole dictator for a day talk. So I actually am of the mindset, did, did someone from the Trump campaign team contact Nick Fuentes and say, we need you to say something, and, and by the way, it doesn't need much encouragement here. Let's be honest about it. We need you to say something so extreme and outrageous, it makes Donald Trump's I'll be a dictator, dictator for a day comment seem like it was quaint. Because I kind of get the feeling that's exactly what happened here, is that that, you know, hey, hey, look at me. Sure, I said I'd be a dictator for the day, but I'm not like that guy. That guy over there is crazy. <coughs> Dead serious. I, I'm actually wondering if this was coordinated. If this was, you know, some attempt to... You, Trump was always very good at that. When bad news came down, if if he had to, he would walk in front of he'd walk into the White House press office and jam a freaking crayon up his nose. 
to get people to stop talking about Stormy Daniels. You know, it, it just seriously, the guy was very, he knew that if basically he started eating a tub of paste in front of the media, that no matter what bad news was there beforehand, he could control the news cycle because, oh my God, the president of the United States is, is eating a tub of paste. And so how do you, you know, he needs to basically offset his own mistakes. So he comes on out on, on, on basically at the same time he's out there, I was just joking about being a dictator. You can trust me now. Wink. To all of a sudden have, well, he, you know, look at this guy over here. Boy, oh boy. Thank God I'm not an extremist like him. Everything in the next year is going to be to convince you that Donald Trump is somehow a viable option. I have said this. I'm going to keep saying this. And this is, I'm not, this is, I've, we've got to say this. There is no choice. You're voting for Joe Biden. I get it. You wish you had a third party. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be a third party candidate. It's either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And so you need to vote for Joe Biden because this guy is literally crazy. And don't get me wrong. There are some things about Joe Biden I don't appreciate. But you think you're crazy if you don't think I'm going to be there as early as I can on Election Day voting for Joe Biden. Because if that clown car gets back into the White House, I can only imagine. I can imagine the amount of people that are going to be dead, dead in this country. It's scary stuff. We'll take a break. Come on back. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It is the Matt McNeil Show on a Tuesday. Mail show on your Tuesday, 952-946-6205. By the way, we I think we have finally figured out why Trump is terrified of, of Jack Smith. And it's a story that's come on out on the last 24 hours about what Jack Smith now is planning on introducing into the evidence during his his you know his trial on the attempted overthrow of the government. Now, I want to remind you know, people of, of one thing with Trump. He is not trying to defend himself or his actions. His entire argument is, you can't hold me accountable. You can't ever hold me accountable. And that's, that's it. That's, that's his entire defense. And Jack Smith has called his bluff and basically gone straight to the Supreme Court to get, get rid of any of the appeals process at the circuit court, uh, at, the, uh, at, you know, at, the, at the appellate court, rather, I should say. At the appellate court, he basically said, okay, let's go straight to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's agreed to, to basically rule on this. And considering there is precedent on Nixon, I, I have a hard time. Although, once again, I have zero doubt that uh, Justice uh, R.V. Thomas and, you know, yeah, Justice uh, Five Star Alito will, you know, they're scouring every legal book ever written in this country to find some way that they can say, well, Donald Trump can never be held accountable, but that only applies to Donald Trump. Everyone else can be. That's kind of where they're at right now. Here is why I think Trump is terrified. The prosecution of Trump's federal election subversion trial has an apparent bombshell on the horizon. Jack Smith filed legal documents on Monday indicating he will call three currently unnamed witnesses to speak to a trove of data extracted from Trump's cell phone use 
in during his years at the White House. The first two witnesses, um, the first two witnesses will translate geographic location data logged into the device by Google into a visual representation of the movements of individuals towards the Capitol area during and after the defendant's speech at the ellipse. According to the adopted the, the document, the third witness will use the data to explain how Trump used Twitter on January uh, and January 6th uh, to uh, revealing images and websites visited, determining the usage of the phones throughout the post-election period and identifying the periods of time during which the defendant's phone was unlocked and the Twitter application was open on January 6th. So basically they have access to to his his tweeting and how he was doing it and where he was doing it and what his mindset is. And it definitely puts him in a time slot. Once again, he he's tried to play himself. I'm this innocent victim. I'm out there. There is, so the, uh, the guy, gosh, and, and you know, the, the, um, the, the one guy that there's, and I can't remember, it was, it was the 8chan guy. I can't remember his name. There was a great documentary on uh, Netflix about him. And the guy that made up all the stuff, the, 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 the dark web stuff. I can't remember the, the name of the character, but the, the guy that supposedly is him. Um, anyway, the, the, uh, the, the MAGA guy, the, he basically got some, they were talking about how he was getting some messages and I, I, it would be interesting to figure out if there was messages directly towards people in the crowd. And then if there was an immediate reaction from those individuals within the crowd at that time, I, I it's, that's pretty devastating stuff. If he, if if it is seen where he was directly communicating with people that were leading the charge out there to hang Mike Pence, yeah, uh, that's that's a bad sign. The Trump data on Trump's phone could provide a, uh, you know, a complete lock on Trump, Trump's behavior on January sixth and the days immediately preceding and following, as well as to supply additional information about who had access to his accounts and his devices. It would also explain whether Trump personally approved the January 6th tweet assailing uh, Vice President Mike Pence for not having the courage to overturn election results issued a mere two minutes before Pence was whisked out of the Capitol by security detail as the storming rioters enchanted hang Pence. Monday's filing is the latest indication of what Smith is meant, uh, intends to do with uh, the trove of data collected via search warrant back in January. The trial in which Trump faces four federal charges related to his attempt to thwart the presidential transfer of power is set to begin in March. That's why... By the way, it was very smart of, of Smith to push this to the Supreme Court because Trump was clearly trying to delay the trial by saying we, we sent it to the appeals court. And by doing it this way, it kind of ties the Supreme Court's hands, too. They can't take a, you know, a, part of me is concerned that Roberts will come on out and say something to the effect of, well, we want to make sure we do our due diligence on this. So we'll rule on this in one year. You know, like that, that is, that is something that's, you know, a good idea. The reality is I think that even his hands would be tied on this one. This is pretty cut and dry and established, um, Supreme court rulings that basically you cannot, um, you, you, you know, you can't be, you, you, you do hold the, the president of the United States accountable for crimes they committed. I mean, that's just, that's what it is. Uh, speaking of holding people accountable for their crimes, uh, in 2020, Republican Robert Spindle Jr. was among the fake electors who tried to help then-President Trump overturn the elections. Spindle is a member of the Wisconsin Election Commission. If Wisconsin Secretary of State Sarah uh, Godlewski 
has her way. He won't be for much longer. In a letter Monday to Wisconsin State Senate Majority Leader Devin McLeu, uh, Devin LeMahieu, a Republican, uh, Godlewski uh, uh, called for Spendell to be removed from the Wisconsin Election Commission because of his actions in 2020. I find it abhorrent that the election commissioner, Robert Spindell Jr., knowingly submitted, because you should be reminded, the Wisconsin fake electors, basically to save them from being prosecuted, basically admitted they lied, that Biden won, they knew it, sorry, our bad, and we won't participate anymore. The fact that this guy is currently part of a larger coordinated effort to overturn, serves on the election commission, even though he's part of a larger coordinated event to overturn the will of the people, you know, it, it, that's pretty disturbing, but it is Wisconsin. I mean, come on, it is Wisconsin. They, they, that is, that is a state that funny story for Chicago folks back when the, the Wisconsin went to the seventh circle of hell the Minnesota was in the same situation. They were desperately trying to get a Republican governor up here. We had an independent candidate that did draw away enough votes for the Republican, Tom Emmer at that point. And basically at that point, Mark Dayton won the governor's office. And so we avoided the chaos that was Wisconsin because yeah, Wisconsin has just been a mess ever since, an absolute mess ever since. And the fact that these guys themselves haven't removed this guy from the election commission just tells you everything about the Wisconsin Republican Party and their desire to do whatever they takes to hold on to power. Uh, good evening, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, hour two. That's up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt, Patrick, Brett here. Hi, Brett. How are you, man? I'm doing good. How about you? I found I found a guy to do that tree for 200 bucks, man. That's not five hundred, not a thousand dollars over every year for two years. Nope, two hundred bucks. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll Absolutely, two hundred. That's not bad. That's not bad, especially since I mean, he was dangling from the top of that tree. That was not a cherry picker. That was a ladder. And I mean, I was like, wow, that's that's kind of how I that happened to my back, man. It's, it's like good luck. I, I, I'm sitting there the entire time with my phone ready to call nine one one in case there was a problem. But you know, it's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna miss this. Yeah, that still is a lot of money. And, and the av- for the average family, that's still more money than the average family has for the entire Christmas. I just, it, you know, I, it's for me, there is this push that I've got to make. I've, it's like I've been vo- visited by three ghosts, man. I, you know, this year after last year, this year I am destined to make a quality Christmas. And so I'm going to make that happen. I hope so too, yeah, yes. because, uh, yeah, that was – that was not good last year. <laughs> Although I still have all those drugs from last year. That was good fun. Stocking stuffers. <laughs> hey, guess As long as they're for me and Patrick. No, no. <laughs> someone has to get the show going right here. Uh, Matt's uh, p- tip for police. If you see a car driving down the road with an ATM chain behind it, you might want to pull them over. One of Minneapolis's biggest and most uh, – or excuse me, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong, reading the wrong story here. Uh, this, is, uh, this happened this morning, actually. The um, there was indeed an attempt here. Several people suspected of attaching a bank's exterior exterior ATM with a chain to a pickup truck and dragging it away were arrested a few hours later that day after a standoff in a nearby hotel. Now, more than likely, this is there are gangs of people that do this and they go across the country. 
And they come across, I think it's certain ones, because most banks, I think, have replaced their ATMs to where you're going to pull the back axle off the truck before you're going to pull that thing out of the ground. That's what I was wondering what would happen if you tried that. Well, I think so. What it is yeah. is you're, it's like when you see go to a gas station, they have like old-style gas pumps. It's like, wow, I haven't seen ones like this in a while. It's that sort of thing. It's the ATMs oh. that they have. And so they're out there looking for those. That's at least the the the, the – when you take a bit of the bank, what was the – Great Southern Bank. So it doesn't sound like a big chain bank. This could be an older ATM. Uh, so apparently they, they, their interest was piqued when they saw the the uh, the, uh, uh, the change will pick up there. Uh, Deputy Police Chief Joe Adams told Star Tribune the FBI is looking into the incident because it has the hallmarks of the Texas-based hook and chain gang and has been pulling off these heists elsewhere in Minnesota and other states. Police responded about 4 a.m. to the alarm at Great Southern Bank at 1875 County Road B2. Saw a pickup truck yanking an ATM off the ground. Uh, the driver fled, soon crashed, allowing police to capture one of the suspects. But the other four ran and holed up in the nearby Key Inn on the 2500 block of North Cleveland Avenue. When you're in town, stop at the Key Inn. The standoff ended at about 7.30 this morning. The four arrested without further incident. Adams said the ATM has been recovered, he noted. The criminal tactic has been employed in recent years with increasing prevalence and been used in August and September in cities including Green Bay, Columbus, Georgia, and Decatur, Alabama. The national business consulting firm based in Oregon, Cook Solutions Group, said this method of theft typically occurs between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. when there are a few people around. You have to have – I mean, the amount of noise you're going to make on something yeah, like you're this. You're not doing that in the middle of the day. Yeah, you got to do that overnight. These attacks cause yeah. significant property damage with financial losses. Uh, to prevent hook-and-chain ATMs, various strategies and security measures were deployed, such as installing anti-ramming ba- bollards. <laughs> very, very medieval. <laughs> so, so it's good to know that if Charlemagne comes over the hill, we're good on those. There also reinforced ATM enclosures and enhanced surveillance of ATM locations. I told you about going to the post office in Vegas, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So they don't. Yeah. If you, Patrick, if you ever go to the post office in Vegas, you can't mail. No longer can you mail mail outside. Like you, you go to a most a lot of post offices here. There's like a drop off, outdoor drop off in Vegas. So many people were trying to rob those. They, Of course, when they had the original ones, those got yanked out of there really quick. They encased it in concrete, and someone rammed into it and stole it from that. Then they encased it in a block, and someone blew dynamite, apparently not realizing that when they put the dynamite in there, it was going to blow up the mailbox. So now you have to go in, and if you go into a, the post office in Vegas, downtown Vegas, that is like going into a Swiss freaking bank. You know, you get you get you got to go through a tube. You go through, and there's one of those glass things where no one can like reach a gun underneath it or anything like that. You just basically have to, you know. I just want to mail a postcard, dude. <laughs> but that's the Vegas post office, man. That is disturbing. But this is this is how they do it. And I would, I mean, I hope they caught the actual gang. It'd be nice if they did. Yeah, these guys have been causing a lot of damage, it sounds like, and I imagine uh, if they're going to keep doing this, someone's probably going to end up injuring themselves. They're going to run into an ATM that wasn't the style they thought it was, and yeah, it's going to go south. It's going to pull off their axle. That's what's going to happen. All yeah. right, so one 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 um, update from the story yesterday, because we have to kind of talk about this. You, you heard us talking about Marvin Haynes. This is the guy that was released after 20 years in prison. Oh, yeah. So no evidence. There's no physical evidence at the crime scene. This was a shooting of a flower shop guy. 
The one eyewitness said the individual was 180 pounds, six foot tall, and had short hair. Marvin Haynes was 150 pounds, was five foot seven, and his hair at the time the police arrested him was a big bushy afro. They specifically used a mugshot of him from two years earlier when he had shorter hair to match the eyewitness claim because it was clear at that point they didn't have the right guy. And we've talked about not only is this a massive injustice for Marvin Hayes, who was sitting in jail for 20 years, but this killer is still out there because the police basically said, oh, black guy, good enough. And I have been very critical of the prosecutors, and I've been very critical of even the, the, the court-appointed public defender. How in the world did you not point this out, that this couldn't have been the guy? Because once again, no physical evidence. One eyewitness, and the eyewitness description didn't even match the guy without them basically finding a two-year-old photo that matched the description at the time. I do wonder, too, if the prosecution put so much fear into the heads of the defense. Well, we got to take any sort of deal immediately, and maybe that's something you – that gets overseen or a public defender that gets overworked. I mean, yeah, that, to me, that just seems so obvious that, yeah, the mugshot is from two years ago and he's completely different. You would think someone would notice that. So I asked the question in my mind, who was the Hennepin County attorney at that point? Haynes case doesn't tell us anything about Minneapolis police department that we didn't already know, though the times coverage reminds us that our police screw ups, whether uh, new or historical are now national news. And as the story points out, the case renews scrutiny on, Amy Klobuchar, because she was, for Hennepin County Attorney for eight years, uh, Klobuchar's office issued a non-comment comment late Monday about Haynes. Uh, I got news for you. You need to explain to us how your office prosecuted a guy where the clearly it wasn't that guy. It wasn't the you didn't have the right. Your office prosecuted him. This is the second high-profile repudiation of a homicide, homicide conviction secured by uh, Klobuchar's office in 2020 when she was running for president. A report of the AP suggested that Myron Burrell, who had been sentenced to life in prison at the age of 16 for a murder of an 11-year-old girl, was in fact railroaded by police. Following the report, the state looked into the case. His sentence was commuted. The prosecution in both cases was Mike Fernstall, now retired, who has continued to maintain that Burrell, Burrell was guilty despite the subsequent developments. Um, Klobuchar called Burrell's release the right and just decision. Um, basically, uh, we have to – yeah, it was Amy Klobuchar. She was in charge when they prosecuted both of those guys, and those guys were clearly not the right guys. And it, it's there. that is the – not only are you just putting black guy in jail – and making the, that, the, the individual you have in, in, in jail match the crime. But you're not catching the people that committed the crime. The, 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 you know, the, the, there's someone murdered the 11-year-old girl. Someone 11, murdered her. Someone murdered the flower shop owner. Someone did this. And you didn't go find them because, what, laziness? Did you just, was it the mentality of, oh, good enough, nearest black guy, we'll make, that, we'll make them the, the, the person. See, we've got, we've got results. Uh, they did. This is from the racket guys, and the racket guys did come out there that say they, they did decide to come back and give Klobuchar a little positivity. She has put forward the Fans First Act in Houston on Friday, being called the most comprehensive ticketing industry reform package to ever appear before Congress. The legislation would require ticket sellers and resellers to disclose the total cost of the ticket, including fees up front, also to break down the cost of the ticket and state whether they are the original seller or not. 
The bill also contains multiple consumer protection measures and punishments for those who break the law. Critics of the bill say that while the FFA ban speculative sales of tickets in the seller does not actually own, it does not prevent the use of concierge services or, services or hiring people to stand in line for you digitally. So, but at the same time, it's not just Ticketmaster saying, hey, give us a bunch of those tickets. We're going to resell them on the market. Well, I'm glad some of those critics are looking out for Ticketmaster because no, who, else? It's like, who else is? Speaking of lining people, hiring people to stand up in line for you, uh, <laughs> I would take a good guess that, hmm, I wonder who hired those guys that have been critical of the bill. Uh, we have to come to grips with the fact that now, this is two cases under Klobuchar's regime at the Hennepin County Attorney's Office that were not just wrong, which were comically wrong. Comically wrong just in the description of the case, horrifically wrong when you realize you put wrong people in jail and murderers are still out there running around. Uh, Senator, with all due respect, I'm a big fan. You're going to need to address this a little bit because – Oopsie doesn't cut it, nor does no comment. Yeah, I think more questions going to be asked. As he said, that's two of them. That is very concerning. One of them you could say, well, maybe an oversight. Two, usually yeah. when there's smoke, there's fire, unfortunately. Well, the one yesterday, the Haynes one yesterday. Dear Lord. That was, I mean, how did, that is just such a massive miscarriage of justice. I mean, I, I can't even, I can't even comprehend how you, you, anyone in that office went along with it. I just, it, you need to explain that again because the only positive ID happened because you took a picture two years older that had a shorter haircut, which matched the description of the person that shot him. His hope back then it wasn't just we need a conviction immediately to get something done, and yeah, you're just putting yeah. in the first person you know you can convict. You, you know, know that which, this, this, but, but you see, is that that's you know people in this say, well, I want, we want someone who's tough on crime. Well, are they tough on crime or are they railroading people in? to take guilty pleas even when they're not guilty. Reminder, under Freeman with uh, Jaleel Stallings, they knew, Jaleel Stallings knew that the, the body cam footage showed that he had done nothing wrong, and they were still trying to get him to get an eight-year sentence, still trying to get him to plead out to eight years until he was found not guilty. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, we're going to release this footage, but passions are going to be high. You know, you need to calm down. Really? Yeah, it's always a good sign. Uh, you, uh, speaking of news, Cooligan, kind enough to join you today. Yeah, I got a number of quick hitter stories we're talking about today, including uh, Dina Winter's interview with the guy who took Mike Lindell up on his $5 million offer to disprove voter fraud. Yes. We're going to be talking about that, as well as uh, Minnesota Republicans trying to oust their chair unsuccessfully and rather hilariously. And what else do we have today? Oh, yeah, we're talking about the deer hunt as well and some numbers, oh. which... Uh, Require a little nuance when you hear people saying, well, look, there's no more deer. It's all the wolves' fault. And, yeah, there's more to it. Yeah, I saw the maps. We talked about that yesterday. Hey, maybe you just suck at hunting. Hey, have you thought about that? It might be that. Uh, Okay, Patrick Cooligan with Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, who's going to be talking about some of the great stories they've been working on over at minnesotareformer.com. As today, we're going to be talking about some data from the deer hunt and what we can learn from that. We are also going to be talking about the guy who took Mike Lindell up on his offer of a $5 million reward to disprove his claims of election fraud back in the 2020 election cycle. We'll also be talking about Minnesota's very complicated grant systems and problems with the Minnesota Republican Party and their efforts to try to oust their current chairman, David Hahn. So lots to get to today. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on. 
Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about the deer hunt, uh, since that is still taking place, at least in uh, some respects, uh, as we're speaking right now. Because the reason I'm talking about this is that Christopher Ingram, the data reporter for The Reformer, was able to uncover some data of uh, what we've been seeing so far from the deer hunt. And it comes in the face of, well, as Christopher writes, efforts to reinstate a Minnesota wolf hunt that continue to gain steam on the heels of what was largely a disappointing deer season, as there is this group called Hunters for Hunters, which is a newly formed advocacy group that has been holding meetings across the state to try to drum up support for their cause. Their arguments are heavy on an added oak with tales of failed hunts, disappearing deer, and wolf prints in the snow feature heavily in their discussions. The impression they give, which is echoed by a lot of uh, sympathetic media and political figures, is that northern Minnesota deer are on the verge of going extinct. But when you get a chance to really look at the data, it's a little bit more spotty on this right now as I'm looking through kind of where we have the southwest extent of the wolf range and it looked like we have some mixed data in terms of well whether we did have uh, an unsuccessful or a successful deer hunt season what do you make of this data that Christopher was able to uncover Patrick uh yeah I think that um Chris's whole point and he's uh he's now written a, a few times about this is that uh all the anecdotes of hunters uh which have been parroted by politicians and sympathetic media figures uh, they they don't actually uh, reflect uh, the reality as as we have from uh, deer census figures and what we know about um, how many deer were actually uh, uh, bagged in the recent uh, in the recent uh, hunting season. Um, and um, what Chris has uh, has reported is that the the reason uh, that uh, deer counts could be down. Is because of the harsh winters that we've had um, a few years in a row, and this follows a pattern uh, going back uh, 10 years when we had another harsh winter. Uh, also, if you actually look at the numbers, there's some some regions of the state where uh, the numbers are uh, are actually up, and and we've seen an increase in uh, deer, and some of that has occurred uh, in the in the uh, regions where we would find wolves. Um, so we're just seeing a lot of noise and uh, a lot of heat around this argument uh, and not quite enough light. And that's what Chris has tried to uh, try to provide here. And uh, I mean, one thing that he's also pointed out, which is really interesting, is that at the same time that we're hearing from deer hunters that we have to start killing wolves to uh, preserve the deer, um, at the same time, uh, farmers are saying that there's too many deer. And it's it's uh, hurting the their livestock. Um, they're eating the grains, and so there's some irony there. Um, and uh, my my joke is that I wonder if some of the same people are making the same arguments. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that as you hear lots from uh, the the local media um, about uh, this group, Hunters for Hunters, and and their sympathetic. Uh, politicians and uh, media figures uh, take it with a grain of salt and look at the data because the data shows something else. I like that name too as the advocacy group Hunters for Hunters. Uh, I kind of got a kick out of that one. But I also wanted to look at some data as Christopher was able to uncover our deer hunt numbers comparing 2022 to 2023. And while there was a big decline in terms of our uh, deer hunt numbers in northeastern Minnesota specifically, 
Well, there could be more reasons than just, well, blaming it on wolves. Isn't that correct? Like, as you were alluding to, there could be harsh winters, loss of habitat. There are lots of reasons for why there are certain areas that, well, didn't see much of a deer hunt this year. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is go back and look at the, the history here. And in years when you have a severe winter, there are fewer deer. Um, and so the last really severe winter, um, I remember it because I was in, I was in Michigan, it was 13, 14. And sure enough, you had uh, lower deer counts. So um, there's, there's more here than just uh, one predator. And I, I'm sure the other, the other thing is that, uh, you know, I mean, you can, you can go, uh, I mean, there are deer everywhere. <laughs> they're, they're going through everybody's yeah. backyards. Uh, now granted, th- th- these folks that are complaining are, are in the uh, far northeast Minnesota. Um, but I think the idea that uh, th- there's a shortage of deer or deer going extinct um, is a little hard to believe. Um, deer are well situated um, to survive um, and be prolific in this uh, environment. I'll encourage you to go check out Christopher Ingram's article, Maps Reveal Where Deer Hunters Struck Big and Struck Out, because it's important to look at the data when you hear oftentimes politicians and advocacy groups uh, sometimes maybe giving you data that isn't quite accurate or maybe a little bit skewed. Find that over at minnesotareformer.com. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about Mike Lindell, because Bob Zeidman is a guy who took up Mike Lindell on his challenge of $5 million to anyone who could disprove his claims that the 2020 election was stolen. You might remember Mike Lindell making that offer a few years ago. Well, Zeidman took him up on it, and he's a guy who is well qualified to do it, because he's a cyber forensics expert who has programmed computers for about 50 years. He was a pioneer in the field of software forensics and founded several successful successful Silicon Valley firm. So this wasn't just some guy sitting in his basement. He's very qualified. And what's interesting about this guy, too, is that he was able to disprove Mike Lindell's claims. But what I find interesting about this guy, too, Patrick, is that he was not someone that was just looking to troll Mike Lindell, a Democrat or a liberal. This guy was a big-time Trump supporter who also had a lot of respect for Mike Lindell with what he went through with addiction, Mike Lindell's battle with addiction. So this is a Dina Winter had a chance to speak with this guy, and I found this conversation interesting that she had with him just because I didn't know how much of a guy, a Trump supporter this guy was. He wasn't out there just to troll Lindell. He was largely out here to try to take Lindell at his face value and then finding out that, well, most of this so-called data that Lindell had was largely gibberish. Yeah, so uh, the listeners might remember that Dina, uh, a couple of weeks or so ago, published a story that was a great account of kind of hanging out with Mike Lindell and, and the, the frenzied uh, life of Mike Lindell as he tries to uh, end our reliance on election uh, voting machines while also saving his pillow company. And uh, after that ran, this gentleman reached out and he, he really is uh, kind of a unicorn and the last guy that Mike Lindell uh, sh- should have uh, been going up against. He, because as you say, he was, he said he voted for Trump. He said he didn't like Trump necessarily, but he voted for him. He's clearly a conservative guy. Uh, he, he said he, he admired like Mike Lindell who built a business and recovered from drug and alcohol or, or is in recovery from drug and alcohol abuse uh, and addiction. And, uh, so he goes there to this symposium that you may remember Mandel had uh, in, in early 21, I think it was, or fall of 21. 
and um, he finds that the whole thing is just a made up and uh the, the any any uh, uh makes this discovery and he he's almost disappointed yeah he you know he figures surely Lindell uh, is not going to give us a bunch of bad bad data and it's not clear whether Lindell is kind of in on it or not but the bottom line is he's proven that this uh, trove of data is just gibberish. And now Mike Lindell, for his, his contest, prove me wrong and I'll give you $5 million, owes this guy $5 million. And of course, Lindell's now fighting it. And you were talking about is kind of questionable as to whether Lindell knew this data was fake, because basically uh, what what Zybin did is that he had this 23 gigabyte document from Lindell's folks, which largely just turned out to be nothing but zeros and ones. I think he was saying he could even open it on a Word document. And yeah, there are questions as to whether Lindell knew about this. And I take it uh, Zybin is probably not expecting to get this $5 million eventually, correct? Well, you know, a mediator has said he's owed the money. And, you know, at some point, presumably, uh, Lindell will have to pay. Um, but it could be years. You could drag it out forever, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, in in litigation, if you have if you have lawyers, uh, you can do that. Um, but yeah, and and the other interesting thing is that he he points to this guy named Dennis Montgomery, um, who is kind of seems to have been some of the the originator of of some of the um, this hypothesis about uh, election interference and. Um, and he's a long-standing uh, a guy who's let's put it this way I don't want to get sued here from our uh, this little radio appearance but he's been uh, accused of of uh, all kinds of uh, perjury and uh, misleading the United States government in all kinds of uh, court proceedings and legal documents. That's the origins of a lot of this. Is a guy named Dennis Montgomery who's got just a long history of, uh, let's say, deception. Um, and and so that was another red flag for this guy. And it's just, it's just quite a story. And, and of course, it's probably going to happen again. I mean, we can expect this kind of uh, thing to happen uh, after November election. Yeah, I encourage you to read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, because you'll want to get a little more information about this guy, Dennis Montgomery, and this uh, software he has kind of created that can, uh, well, make uh, documents appear a little bit different than they really are. Uh, Check it out over at minnesotareformer.com. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit more about the political realm and the drama that is currently happening, well, with the Minnesota Republican Party, because as I understand it, they were attempting to, at least a group of uh, Minnesota Republicans were trying to oust the current chair of the party, David Hahn. This was mostly a group of MAGA Republicans. Now, as I understand it, Patrick, this effort over the weekend was largely not successful, but one of the leaders at the convention, Larry Deuce, thought this whole thing was kind of a catastrophe with the idea that Republicans, with all the turmoil they're facing right now, specifically here in Minnesota, on the MAGA side, are still trying to focus on taking down David Hahn and were largely unsuccessful in doing so. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so David Hahn, the chairman, former state senator, uh, he remains in place. Um, but it's just kind of another distraction uh, for the for the state party. 
uh, which has really struggled, I would say, since uh, the summer of uh, 21 when Jennifer Carnahan uh, was was faced with the, the problem of a big party donor um, and operative who was uh, accused and eventually convicted of a underage uh, sex trafficking ring. And the chaos has just kind of been constant since then. Um, and of course, punctuated by the disastrous 2022 election. The other problem is that the, the party doesn't have any money. Um, that's been true for quite some time. They, they were doing a little better. Uh, but this, I think this chaos, the bad election, you know, donors really have to think twice. And uh, the Republicans also have a number of, uh, you know, legitimate kind of aligned groups like the Jobs Coalition, the, this is the Chamber of Commerce has their own political uh, arm and uh, the, the the business partnership. And I think donors are thinking, you know, why wouldn't I give to one of those organizations that uh, is run by somebody that I know and, and can trust and, and not by uh, this constant tomfoolery uh, over at the, at the state Republican party. So the, the insurgency failed this weekend, uh, but I, I think it is a, just a sign of uh, more dysfunction. The question is, you know, does it matter? Because uh, the, the, the 2024 election is, is going to be uh, dominated by the Trump Biden um, campaign, presumably, and, and a lot of earned media. And, you know, do you need functioning state party uh, when you've got uh, the the greatest showman in, in uh, recent American political history at the top of the ticket? That's 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 the big question. But I think close elections like in these in the state house, which is where the the in the, in the second congressional district, these are the competitive races. They can be decided by very few votes, and that's where a party organization that can organize, recruit and organize volunteers can really matter. And finally, I want to talk about one more column that was written in The Reformer today before we wrap things up, and this is one from Chuck Johnson, who is a former deputy commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Human Services, and he wrote a column talking about the very complicated grants system we have in Minnesota. Now, it might sound kind of dry, but uh, get this here from, from the article, though. Back in August of 2022, the Office of the Legislative Auditor released an audit examining the Department of Human Services Administration of Grants and Housing of Homelessness Programs, and the audit found that the DHS did not have adequate controls to ensure compliance with applicable legal requirements and did not always comply with significant legal requirements related to grant management. All right, so you picked up that part. But interestingly... The DHS apparently found out that there was no indication of any of the funds associated with those grants that were misspent. So they were used for their intended purposes. So that's where we bring in Chuck Johnson's column because he brings up this point that in the DHS at least, they have a documented 86-step program to manage a grant from start to finish. Patrick, that sounds absolutely insane. I know we oftentimes hear people joking about uh, government red tape, and oftentimes it's warranted, but 86 steps is pretty insane to take that uh, grant from start to finish. Yeah, and then the point of that is uh, so that the money uh, won't be misused and that it's used well. Um, but there's just, I, th- I think it's just uh, bureaucratic mandates 
that are layered one on top of the other. And I don't necessarily, I mean, the, the point that Chuck makes is that there's no, there's no evidence that, um, that it's actually effective. Uh, you know, Chuck kind of um, alludes to this. He doesn't really go into it deeply, but my, my question is he says that there's 2000 grant contracts that just in the department of human services. And, you know, I, I think that there's, there's an argument to, to especially reaching underserved populations that certain nonprofits can cater well and they should be uh, given these grants. But I, I think that this kind of thing should have us rethinking the way that we do social services and maybe we ought to be bringing more of it in-house. Um, because, like, for instance, the Feeding Our Future uh, scandal where all this money was stolen um, that was supposed to be intended for, for hungry children the the problem starts with having with giving sending money out the door to these phony nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was just something the government did, or if you just gave people cash so that they could spend money on food, um, that might be a more direct, uh, kind of cleaner way to do things and uh, less uh, prone to fraud. So Chuck doesn't really address that quite directly. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting if he does so in the future. If, if he doesn't, I might in a column because I think that's something to consider uh, when you're giving out 2,000 grants uh, to, with, with all of these bureaucratic steps. It, it's bound to um, really hinder government's ability to provide the services that uh, that we want. Yeah, and sometimes uh, there even is fraud, as we saw with the Feeding Our Future program, and you would think maybe things would just be efficient if we just handle this in-house, because, yeah, certainly all of these steps to all these controls are necessary if you're going to be giving out government money to different organizations. You want to make sure it's well spent, but it is a good point as to whether it'd be better off just keeping it in-house and then maybe saving some of that money on the red tape, and maybe overall just having it run better by bringing it in-house. So, yeah, as you said, Chuck... And we have a pretty pretty good... We have a good program that to feed hungry children. It's called Free School Lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in every public school. And we don't outsource that to some nonprofit. We, we, just, mm-hmm. we just do it. And, uh, and, and you skip a lot of this, um, this bureaucratic um, morass that, that you find with, the, with trying to manage all these grants. And I wonder, too, if uh, at the state legislature, if you ever were to take a look at maybe trying to bring some of these things in-house, yeah, you would probably would get some pushback from some of these organizations that do receive money, which I could see really kind of crossing some political lines if the legislature were to take an aggressive step saying, hey, let's try to move some of these things in-house. It would be a a little complicated, but I think as Chuck's column demonstrates, uh, something's got to change, at least with our grants program. Yeah, that would be uh, politically very dicey yeah. <laughs> uh, because you've got a, a, a lot of nonprofits that are aligned um, with, uh, especially with the DFL. Yeah, it would be a very, but both very... parties actually. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Well, make sure you check that out over at minnesotareformer.com and the other articles we talked about and columns over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.
AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. An outstanding visit there with Patrick Cooligan and Brett, 952-946-6205. So there's a, there was a story earlier this year that was in Racket that talked about the real trials and tribulations of musicians when they're on the road. And there is this mentality that... You you know if you're a musician and you're going on tour that you know you're staying in nice hotels and all this stuff and it's not it's it's absolutely you know kind of one of those things where it's you know you're you're low budget the entire time you're trying to cut costs and all these things and for a long time the one saving grace was merch sales that you could that you know for the most part and and at least from the guys I used to talk to, I've, I've talked to that used to be in bands in the you know, like the 80s and the 90s that would go around they they would you would be able to keep your merch profits. And that was, so, you know, there was a lot of pressure on you to, you know, have stuff out there and someone to sell, but things have changed. And one of the things I think a lot of people, including myself, I did not realize was that there's a lot of bands that when it comes to playing a venue, they don't get the merch anymore. And they talked to a lot of bands there uh, in that it's a great article. I'll see if I can find it, repost it from Racket. Well, you know, it's... This is a problem because, you know, you're basically nickel and diming these musicians to death. And the reality is, is you, you're one of the reasons why you're having a hard time cultivating local music. And I think not, not only here in the Twin Cities, but I think nationwide is because it's very hard to do. You get a band like Dury, who, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Tried to get tickets. They sold out really fast with the first half of the show. Although people are telling me, like, apparently there's some tickets in the secondary market still open and stuff like that. But, um, you know, yeah. And by the way, the ticket says $33 in the secondary market. It could be 65 by the time I get all the fees and stuff done on it. So I got to be careful with something like that. But that being said, the when I look at the... Um, when, when I look at the these bands and I see them out there. These are, (laughs) you know, this is getting blood from stone sort of thing. You know, these guys don't have a lot of money in the first place. Well, the armory who, and I've been to, I've been to a few concerts at the armory. It's a, it's a, I love what they did with the facility. A lot of these facilities, specifically the armory, I'm pretty sure some taxpayer dollars went in there to preserve the building and all that stuff, which I think needs to be put into place. One of Minneapolis' biggest and most visited concert venues, the Armory, is earning negative attention nationwide after the singer of the metal band band Falling in Reverse lambasted it on stage and on social media for wanting 25% a cut of the group's merch. 25%? Okay, I'm presuming that's not the profits from it, that, that it's just the sale. Which once again, then you're you're basically leaving nothing for the band, considering the the, the shirts cost like if it's a t-shirt, it costs money to make the t-shirt, and you know you know a band is not going to get fifty thousand shirts at a low rate, they're only going to get a few, and yeah, it, so you basically if twenty five percent of the merch has to go to the venue. Well, that's then the band's not going to. I can't see how much money is the band getting from merch? A few cents? Enough for a Big Mac? Dear Lord. I mean, by the way, if there's any story out of this that you need to take, if there's a lesson here, go to the band's website and order the merch directly from the band. They'll get the money then. 
All right. If you love a band, Dury, love Dury. I've got more Dury t-shirts and stuff. I always order it from the website. That way, you know, the band is getting the money. That's safety tip. This is Ronnie Radke. There is not a single reason these venues have have to make this okay. He said in a post on Twitter, after his group headlined a concert at the Armory on Saturday, his comments were quickly picked up by national music news sites. To anyone out there wondering why merch is so expensive, it's because these venues are stealing from the artists. Radke wrote, last night I told the Armory to go blank themselves on stage, and if any of you bands play this venue, I'd advise you to do the same. Video clips shot by audience members confirm the singer didn't deem to go blank themselves, raised his middle finger to the venue during the concert, which also featured uh, Daughtry. That night, the band opted to not to sell any of its T-shirts or other merchandise on site, which is usually a major source of revenue that bands depend on to making touring profitable. But if 25% of it's going to the venue, guess what? You're not going to make any money at all. We have to charge you guys way more than just make any money, Radke said on stage for his group's decision. In a statement released to the Strib, representatives from the Armory said the 25% cut was part of the contract and negotiation with the band's agents and covers the costs associated with the services selling it, livable wages for the contractors and vendors who set up, sell, and responsible for the inventory, credit card fees, materials, infrastructure, logistics. Uh, Okay. I've been to the Armory. You make it sound like it's a ma and pa organization and operation where you're barely getting by. There's a there's an old geezer in the back room and he's got a scale and he's putting the pennies on one side and well my we we can't afford to do all this. You guys are making money. You guys are making coin. Please. If you weren't, you wouldn't be in the industry. I mean, th- these venues make money with these concerts. As an independent venue, we work extremely hard at keeping our deals and and artists honest, fair, and transparent through the entire show process. The Armory Statement reads, although we disagree with the claims made, it's not our policy to publicly comment on financial arrangements. We are very disappointed that falling in reverse felt mistreated, and we'll work harder to the future to ensure the situation does not happen again, a.k.a. they're not going to have them back, would be my guess. Most mid-sized to large rock venues, including Minnesota's Indie Powerhouse, First Avenue, and its associated properties, have long made it a practice to take between 10 and 20% of many of its performance merch sales. Some venues around the county have gone as high as 40%. The tactic has been a hot topic since the content industry roared back into business in 2021 following the COVID lockdown, which puts venues around the country in a precarious financial state along with all musicians forced on the road. In an effort to sharpen its image and look more artist-friendly, the concert industry's biggest promotions company, Live Nation, which is Ticketmaster, um, and they own the Twin Cities venues, the Fillmore and the Varsity, announced in September it would not take any merch sale money from the artists through the end of 2023. Live Nation has not indicated on whether it will continue that policy into the next year, though. When I was at when I was in New Orleans, I was down there, and I was at uh, Tipitina's. And I saw Rory Danger and the Danger Dangers. And I, I asked the guy because I just, I think it was like only two or three weeks earlier, I had read the story in the racket about the merch sales. And I said, you guys keep your merch sales? He goes, yep, we do. And I was like, perfect. There you go. So I think, okay, so whether or not this changes, I highly doubt it. The the way that venues, and whether that's a sports venue, a concert venue, a theater, a theater venue, they make money. They have to make money out of any way they can. 
and they will make money. I, sh- I should make sure I, I'm very careful with this because, you know, it's like I said, I, I'm most of these venues are not exactly living check to check. How about I say it like that? But at the same time, if you are a fan of a band and a band is playing the venue, do you want to, you know, you know, I'm going to guarantee you it's probably going to cost you cheaper just to buy the T-shirt on the site. Now, here's the one thing. Musicians, please, if you could. Put the tour shirts on your websites. Put the tour tour shirts out there. If you make it to where it's an exclusive shirt you could only get on tour, well then, yeah, then you basically give the venue the power to abuse you. If everything that you sell is available on your website, well, you basically take that away. But, you know, buyer beware. If you're if you're at the concert venue and you see the T-shirt, understand that probably a good portion of that money is actually not going to be going to the artist. And whether or not the artist makes any money off that shirt, if you're a fan of that artist, don't you want them to make some money off of that? Then just go and buy it off their website. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Personal responsibility. When I come on back, it's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So you know how the conservatives always talk about, we don't need government. We've got personal responsibility. (laughs) Government's only for wuss balls. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Funny story. Most of those people are desperately, when things go wrong, desperately need the government. And sometimes you get a story and we've talked about this issue here in Minnesota a lot, but you're getting this out in really red South Dakota. And, uh, yeah, I I just want to kind of say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait about personal responsibility. Nothing I think highlights this more than the scourge that is zebra mussels. A nonprofit is launching a study of the economic impact of the zebra mussel invasion in South Dakota and accusing the state government of a lackluster response to the problem. The South Dakota Lakes and Streams Association, based in Sioux Falls, said Monday it will spearhead a $107,000 study. To de- uh, it's designed to provide legislators and other lawmakers and leaders information to best protect the state's lakes and rivers. The state has been throwing up its hands in capitulation, according to the association board member. The state was not wanting to do this type of study, even though the zebra mussels are pretty much everywhere are starting to become everywhere. We believe it's important to conduct a, the needed research to understand the economic impact. In response, Nick Harrington, the communication manager for the State Department of Game, Fish, and Parks, said in an email to South Dakota Searchlight, GFP has significantly enhanced efforts to slow the spread of aquatic invasive species in recent years, both educating anglers and boaters to clean, dry, and drain every time they are in the water, as well as physically inspecting boats prior to and, and unloading. How's that going for you? Oh, not very well. You know, the state of personal responsibility seems like there's a lot of people that aren't personally responsible. According to the association, there are 22 lakes or rivers in South Dakota infested with zebra mussels. Now, it should be noted, it's not like Minnesota. There's not a lot of lakes over there, comparatively, and some of their lakes are big ones. So they've had, um, in South Dakota, Lewis Clark Lake, Missouri River before Gavin's Point, McCook Lake, Lake Yankton, Lake Sharp, Francis, uh, Lake Francis Case, Pickerel Lake, Lake Cochran, Lake Campesca, Dami Quarry, Lake Mitchell, Pactola Lake, 
Enemy Swim Lake, Blue Dog Lake, South Rush Lake, Clear Lake, James River, Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge, Roy Lake, Big Sioux River, and the Big Sioux Lake, as well as Lake Oahe, that that have all had problems in it. Apparently now it's at, where is the dam here? This is out of Blue Stem Prairie posting this one. Um, that there, there there's a dam where um, it's it's now at on the Miss, the Missouri River, and that's obviously going to be a major problem. A, you know, assisting the study is Nanette Nelson, a research economist with the University of Montana. Uh, she did a study in Montana that said if zebra mussels were colonized in the water bodies of that state, they would cause up to 122 million in mitigation expenses, 112 million in lost revenue, and 497 million in lost property value. Uh, you don't have a lot of property value variance that you have in South Dakota. My th- The point is this, is that for the people that are out there, clearly South Dakota is really starting to have some problems with zebra mussels. But it's also one of those states where it's personal responsibility. Well, but if the person doesn't feel they need to be responsible, guess what? It kind of destroys your freaking lakes. Something we've seen around here. I saw it firsthand over at Lake Minnetonka, for goodness sakes. It is, you, you, you cannot trust people to do the right thing. And that's a real sad part of our society. So you need to have government come in and help regulate. Because I guarantee you this, you sure want the government to spend the money to help clean up the mess, don't you? Native Roots Radio is up next. We are back tomorrow. Until then, see ya.